Jesus. Mark chapter 12. If you will stand for the reading of Holy Scripture. Mark chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. This is God's word. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him, threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him. And went away. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. By his grace and mercy, may it be preached for you. You may be seated. And as we come to consider this portion of God's word, let us pray for his help. Almighty God, it is easy to come here this morning, perhaps with slow or empty hearts um, that, that are bogged down with the things of the world, that are gummed up with the things that weigh heavily upon us, whether that be concerns for the affairs of life, which is reasonable, whether it be the weight of sin and temptation, 
Perhaps it is just the wandering eye of the flesh that has taken us far from seeing you clearly. And yet we ask in these moments that you might clear all of that away. That we would see how how that uh, very thing and letting uh, ourselves simmer in that would be the exact mistake that those against whom this parable was told had made. And so uh, free us from that hardness of heart, that we might be uh, eager to pursue after the Son, and that we might be eager to see what He might do in our lives. Overcome the deficiencies of the preacher, for they are significant. And bless the reading and the preaching of your holy word to bring forth fruit in our hearts, that we might love you more and serve you better. And we ask all of this in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Uh, Stories can powerfully actually teach moral points. They don't have to land in a flat way. They can bring home uh, the idea that we need to take into our hearts uh, in some, sometimes more strongly uh, than just stating the point. I mean, one of the, the famous adages recounts a man needing God's help to escape a flood. Right? And as the water rises, he stands on his roof praying for God's help uh, to rescue him in a boat arrives, but he turns it away, saying that he trusts God to, to save him. And then a, a helicopter comes and drops a ladder to rescue him. And again, he waves them away, saying that God will save him. And so, of course, he drowns and asks God why he didn't get rescued. And God replied, I, I sent a boat and a helicopter. What more did you want? And, and the story teaches us really pointedly, that we're foolish if we need God's help, but ignore concrete ways that his help appears. And we shouldn't reject God's help because it doesn't fit our expectations. And the story about the man in the flood reminds us that stories often have that powerful way of teaching us moral truths, but its point also brings us into Christ's parable about the unfaithful tenants in the vineyard. This this parable shows that we try to force God to help us in the the specific ways that we want that help to come. And it convicts us of it. As we've repeatedly seen, as we sort of get further back into this gospel after a number of weeks away uh, from it, Mark's gospel answers the twofold question Who is Jesus and what is his kingdom like? Jesus is God who came to save his people by bringing a gospel kingdom. Christ, as the king of God's kingdom, continually defied expectations as he aimed at goals that were out of step with Israel's common desires and well had the kingdom grow 
in ways that run contrary to ordinary human expectations. Now, chapter 11 showed Christ, as, as Greg helpfully unpacked for us last week, that showed Christ as God who triumphantly entered Jerusalem. And as he came to his temple, he defied expectation by, by judging the religious establishment of Israel rather than the Roman Empire. And because of his actions in judging the temple, symbolized in cursing that fig tree for, as it advertised that it had fruit when it was actually barren, Well, the answer to the question in that closing confrontation should have been obvious as they asked, what authority did he have? Well, Jesus acted with God's own authority. The religious leaders refused to answer Jesus' question since they knew that answering it led to admitting the sort of authority that Jesus wielded. Their obstinacy, their obduracy in refusing to answer Jesus prompted him to tell this parable before us. Now earlier in Mark, he began teaching in parables as a, as a judgment. Parables are not simply illustrations that that aim to make the point clearer for people, but they are ways that Jesus veiled his message. And since chapter 4, all of Jesus' public teaching, right? Not, not his disciples, but when the religious leaders are there, when there's this public face to his teaching, all of his teaching since chapter 4 has been in parables, especially in addressing the religious leaders. And so Mark 12.1 tells us that Jesus immediately replied to the religious leaders' hard-hearted answers by telling them a parable. Now whether they understood the parable's meaning, its, its message is not exactly clear, but verse 12 certainly says that they grasped that this parable was against them, that he was telling it against them. And this parable's role as a judgment for their poor posture towards Christ was then obvious. And we need to see how Christ's parable indicted those religious leaders and how it challenges us in our discipleship. It addresses our tendency to reject God's work when it doesn't fit what we want. And so our main point is that we must be open to God's work In the way that God wants to do it. We must be open to God's work. In the way that God wants to do it. And our three points today are context, contempt, and construction. So first let's think about context. And we want to get to grips with the background of this passage. So the events in 
Christ's parable of the vineyards and its tenants are, are fairly straightforward. I mean, the, the owner of a vineyard lent it to tenants who killed every representative whom he sent to collect his dividends on the, the harvest, including his own son. And so these tenants refused to submit to the owner's authority, instead acting for their own interests alone by taking action against the owner. Now, the, the back, the, those, that event, that, those set of events is perhaps obvious, but the background to this story is perhaps less obvious, unless you've been in Gary's Sunday school uh, then, then you'll know where this is going. So, I mean, the backdrop for this parable is Isaiah 5, 1 to 7, which, which records the song over God's vineyard. So in Mark 12, 1, uh, in that first setup of this parable, Jesus invoked some of the exact details from Isaiah as a way to connect his point to that earlier prophecy. So in, in Isaiah 5 too, God dug it, the vineyard, and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it and he looked for it to yield grapes. But it yielded wild grapes. Jesus included roughly the same details in his parable to signal his reference to this prophecy. Now, in, in the instance we have in Isaiah, the vineyard itself is liable. So the vineyard grows these wild grapes, which means that they were rotten and unusable, even on the vine. God himself had cared for this vineyard, but it produced useless crops. And in response, God would destroy the vineyard. God's response to the vineyard in Isaiah 5 explains why the religious leaders to whom Jesus spoke perceived that this parable was against them. Well, Isaiah 5 was well known as a judgment passage. And so it wouldn't be lost on them. Isaiah explicitly had named Israel as God's vineyard, depicting the nation as, as an unfaithful. And it was, re- it was ripe to be cast off, to be destroyed. And so what then do we make of the focus in, in Jesus' parable upon the, the tenants in Isaiah, the, the vineyard itself is liable. And so what do we do with this, this emphasis on those looking after the vineyard? And so, well, clearly the, the parable was directed against those charged to work the vineyard. Work it to, pre, uh, to present good fruits to the owner. And so the thing was that These tenants wanted fruit for themselves, denying it to the owner. They wanted their own good at the expense of the owner. And that role 
would have described, I mean, that, that would be filled by the religious leaders themselves. So they killed Jesus. They wanted him dead. They were plotting his death because he challenged them, them rather than confirmed them in the cultural position they wanted. It's the same situation then, isn't it? Looking for the vineyard to produce fruits for the tenants rather than the owner. The religious leaders looking for Israel to produce fruits for their own cultural gain rather than fruit for God himself. Whereas Isaiah blamed the vineyard for producing its own rotten fruit, Jesus focused on those who were responsible to cultivate fruit to bring, them, to bring that fruit to the vineyard's owner. So the actions of the tenants was all clearly self-interested. They were meant to work the vineyard in order to bring that good fruit to the one who owned it. And instead, they locked in on their own profit, profits. Right? The, the tension is that the vineyard's owner had given them this, this great place to live. Fully equipped, right? The, the best features that you could have. Choice vines to tend. They, he'd given them this wonderful place to live. And was letting them prosper off of his property. They would have gotten to use some of the fruits too. He wanted only to see the fruit of what he had given to them come back to him as well. But the tenants were selfish. And wanted their own prosperity, specifically to the expense, to the detriment of what the owner ought to receive. And so the context here is Isaiah's warning that God would destroy the fruitless vineyard. That brings us to our second point. Contempt. Contempt. Like, like we tell stories to help teach moral lessons like the, the man who needed help escaping the flood, Jesus told this parable to mark, to depict the moral problem in Israel. God had built Israel to be His Vineyard, but they produced rotten fruit because of their vine dressers. These vine dressers ultimately loved themselves and hated the vineyard's owner, namely God Himself. So, this parable highlights a, a hard aspect of Jesus' relationship to the people of Israel. Israel should have been delighted at his coming. I mean, God had revealed himself to Israel and covenanted with them. He promised to be their God. Blessings waited for them in covenant with God. And in Christ, 
God Himself came to them. He came to secure everlasting blessings for those who would trust in Him. And the religious leader's rejection of Christ represents the broader response within Israel itself. I mean, the parable of the the vineyard here is the history of Israel rejecting and killing the prophets that God had sent to them. It culminates in killing the son of the vineyard owner as he came to those who were tending the vineyard. And of course, the religious leaders were already plotting Christ's death. And so the story's component, told right there before the religious leaders about killing the son, would remind them of their very own desires to kill Jesus. The point would land. And, and the nub of this rejection concerned what people wanted from God. The tenants in the vineyard, well, they, they wanted only the things that the owner could give them. They were totally uninterested in the owner himself and and honoring the owner who had given them so much. Even though he had given them such great blessings, building this place for them to thrive and prosper, well, they set themselves against him. Not just disinterested, but against him. And the point was, of course, about Israel itself. She wanted those blessings from God for living in the land. But they had no interest in truly living with God. They'd inverted Moses' concern. God, if you won't be with us when we go, don't send us at all. They'd come to the place where... Yeah, we're happy to go and be in that nice place, whether you're here or not. Israel didn't want to produce, led by these religious leaders, didn't want to produce the right fruit for God and His glory. They wanted, well, the nice place to live. The society that would be most comfortable. To bring us back to our main point... They, they were interested in God for what they wanted Him to give to them and wanted Him to give those things to them in the ways that they expected. Now, we, we run thought experiments uh, all the time, like asking things like, uh, what, what would your three wishes be if you, if you found a genie in a lamp? Right? It's, a, it's an incredible prospect to encounter a being that answers our every beck and call to, to give us what we want on demand right there at hand. And Israel's religious leaders had started to think about God like that. The Lord was the owner of the vineyard where they lived who was supposed to give them everything they wanted. 
Israel rejected Christ and killed him because when he came, he did not give them the blessings that they wanted and especially did not give them the blessings, those blessings in the way that they wanted. Israel had rethought God as a genie to give them their wishes. And the trouble is, as we start to think, move from the objective to the subjective, is that we so easily do this too. I mean, Israel rejected Christ because he didn't kick out the Romans and, and didn't give them the cultural prestige that they sought and expected. When Christ came and, and called them to repent and to believe the gospel with a view toward heavenly blessings rather than earthly success, they couldn't accept that, that the true Messiah would act so contrary to their expectations. He's supposed to come and deal with them, not with us. And so they killed Jesus. How easy is it for us today to kick Jesus out of the mix because he doesn't give us what we want? I mean, there's a, a huge press in some quarters of the church today to say that the, the true work of the the true work of the church is fight the culture. Certain, I mean, certainly the church has to be clear about our moral stances, and and Christians. Do what we can to uphold righteousness. But we cannot alter the gospel to be about, to make it into creating our preferable society. That's not what it does. We cannot think that Jesus' work failed or that his present work is subpar if we don't get the earthly status quo that we wish we could get. Else we make the same mistake that we see Jesus' opponents making. Now on the other end of that, we see the same problem perhaps in a, in a more pointed, at least if not more dangerous way, as, as the church compromises the truth in order to get that prestige. If God won't give it to us in the kind of bare bones preaching the gospel means of grace way, then we'll find a different way. Because of course God wants us to have cultural clout. If that means compromising, I guess that's just what we do, right? I mean, how quickly the modern church has caved on serious moral issues just to keep a foothold in popular culture. I mean, evangelicals have, by this point, you know, I mean, astoundingly stark way, quit opposing premarital sex. They speak ambivalently about abortion. They at, at least fumble on the issue, if not go ahead and endorse same-sex marriage. Why? Acceptance? in the wider world 
be liked. Because if we just get them to like us on their terms, then we can sort of change our mind again and, and it'll all be fine and they'll listen, right? We revise Christ's teaching in order to get what we want from society. And it happens on two ends. But the result is the same. That we kick Christ out of even the church for the sake of what we want. For the sake of, for the sake of getting the status quo that we prefer. For the sake of gaining cultural position. And the reason is because the same mistake that the false teachers made before Jesus is equally enticing to sinful hearts today. We think, we drift to thinking so easily that God is there to give us what we want in the way that we want it. But God is not a cosmic genie. He he isn't interested in giving us the society we want in the way that we want it, not if it doesn't fit His plan to bring all things into subjection under Christ. Like like the vineyard owner, He's interested in seeing the, the sort of fruit that He built the vineyard to grow. And He has built the vineyard of the church for the fruit of a a relationship with Him that we might know Him and that we might live for Him. The Gospel is not about making this world into what we want. It's not our home. The Gospel is not about making this world into what we want, but about making us into the sort of people that God wants. And so we cannot have contempt for God's work in God's ways. And that brings us to our final point. Construction. Construction. Because the thing is, we have to realize that God is doing exactly the work that He wants to do in the way that he does want to do it. Things may not be as we would desire. And I think that that's fairly, a fairly agreeable point. But scripture is clear that God is building exactly the society that he wants. That society is just the church. So verses 9 to 11. Jesus explained... That because they rejected the Son, God destroyed Israel. Which is what had been said would happen in Isaiah 5. He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture from Psalm 118? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus was rejected. But he's exactly the cornerstone. He may have been turned away. He was killed. 
But he is the foundation for everything that God is going to build nonetheless. God's people, the thing that God is building in the way that he wants to build it, is constituted around the Messiah. Because the vineyard's original occupants rejected the Son, God gave the vineyard to others. In other words, the church now holds the place the tenants had. The church is now Israel. The church hasn't replaced Israel. We inhabit the same vineyard. We haven't replaced something. Just the church has received what others rejected as God has always promised that he would bring the Gentiles into the fold. The privileges of being built upon God's own Son. God is doing that construction of his people in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is building his kingdom upon that rock that is the Savior. The church is Christ's own vineyard. And what a blessing. John 15, Jesus explains this even more, that as as his people is God's vineyard, well, Jesus himself is the vine. And we're the, the branches connected to that divine, saving vine. Jesus is then the source of fruitfulness, nourishing us unto true life and productivity. And in being connected to Jesus as our source of life, well, the right sort of fruit will grow. God's work is to build His people in the Son. And He's doing that by feeding us through Christ as He sustains and grows His church. We may long for a society built according to our preferences. How could we want anything else? It's understandable from one perspective. But the good news is that however disappointed we may be at the end of the day, Christ will return and tear down all the towers of this age. God is building something better than could ever be had here. A city with foundations constructed on the cornerstone of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself that we might all be connected to Him founded upon Him, and know Him forever. Let's pray. Father God, we look at the world around us, and undoubtedly, none of us, even even unbelievers agree that the world is not what we wish it was. And how glad we are, then, that we are pilgrims here, rather than having to accept this as our home. And we are glad that, indeed, we are a vineyard that has an owner. As 
Even when they are not as rebellious uh, as these tenants uh, in, in this parable, certainly those whom you've charged uh, to take care of your branches in this age, the pastors and leaders of your church, are inadequate, weak, and so how good it is to have an owner that is all-powerful who has a son sent to the vineyard to tend us, to be the vine itself, that we might have nourishment. We pray that in whatever confronts us in the week ahead, that we might be reminded of these things, that when we don't get what we want in the way that we want it, it does not mean that you have abandoned us. It means that you're building a home for us that's better than the one we have now. And so set our eyes upon that, upon that city with foundations, where all the longings of our heart will be filled and full forever. We ask it for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. As we come to the